Welcome to the Orchard. We are so glad you are here today, wherever you are joining us from. And I want to, speaking of where you're joining us from, I want to give you a little bit of update of some places that we have been talking about and praying about. First of all, in Vanuatu, you know, we have four Orchard churches there in different villages in the islands of the South Pacific, and they are under a COVID lockdown right now. Pastor James and I have been talking. He lost his mother, unfortunately, a couple weeks ago, so you can be praying for him, praying for his churches as he is a pastor who can't travel to the villages and see them just yet. Um, continued prayers for Orchard Afghanistan and the Christians who are still there and remaining in hiding and their faith and their safety. And, and this week, thanks to your generous giving to the Orchard, we also wired some much-needed funds to a pastor who's driving supplies to Ukrainian churches and Ukrainian families. Pastor John has strong connections there to those churches, and when war broke out, he said he just felt compelled, and he and some of his church have loaded up their vans and made seven trips across the border to deliver food and medicine and vital supplies to these people in need, and he said you wouldn't believe the kind of needs they have in a modern world when war hits. He said with each trip, he comes back with a new list of needs, and and also with refugees who've been displaced, and you can pray for them right now because Pastor John and his wife, Marinella, are praying through adopting a weeks-old infant whose parents um, were tragically killed in the war. Uh, Pastor John and his volunteers, they said that they leave the safety of their church, their town, because there are people across the border who are just hurting and in need. And the orchard, we are supporting Pastor John there in the Ukraine. We are supporting Pastor James in Vanuatu and Brother Abraham as well. But I want you to know we continue to support throughout the years and actually decades people you may not have heard about. Every month we are, we are supporting Juan and Teresa Anderson as they serve in France, raising up youth leaders Marilyn Barnes, who was part of the Jesus Film Worldwide Initiative to take the good news to every nook and cranny in the world. And in fact, I was talking to Dr. David Corson just this week, and the Jesus Film has been translated into the uh, native language of Vanuatu. And as soon as they open up, he and I plan to, uh, to put the film on our back and go there and show it to as many places as we can. We're excited about that. We have Ashley and Becky Denton we support with Nexus International, who travel around the world raising up indigenous leaders and pastors. Russ and Joanne Licht are leaders with International School Project, which allows them to reach countries where Christian mission organizations are not allowed. John Altimist has served in South Asia for many years with children and the underprivileged. Rick and Colleen Borkovic, who lead Alabaster Jars. You might have seen their video that we posted in Nepal and India. They're serving refugee camps and giving displaced women who've lost everything a place where they can get a salary and stability and start a new life for themselves and their family. You can get more information on all that The Orchard is doing in missions worldwide um, by going to our website and clicking missions. We also have a ministry here at The Orchard called Outstretched Arms, which kind of as an umbrella over so many of these places where we, we give. And, and I just want to thank you as your pastor for your generous tithes and giving because yes, God is doing things here and we, are, we have some announcements to make about what God's going to do here locally that's going to blow your mind. But I also want to let you know that God is using um, our tithes and offerings to make practical, real impact in people's lives and salvations around the globe. So thank you. And I pray, you got to know this, I pray that God continues to bless orchard people. And I'm so grateful for each of you. 
Um, I, this isn't in my notes, but I talked to somebody here today this morning who showed me pictures of a car accident they were in this morning, um, this week, and, and they shouldn't be alive. They should not be here. God saved them. And as I prayed for them, I prayed this, that God didn't just save you um, from something. I mean, God saved you for something. And for somebody, not just for them, but for many of you here today, you're going to hear a sermon and you need to know that Jesus didn't just save you from hell, he saved you for a destiny. We have to get it out of our minds that we're just saved for heaven someday. You're saved to bring heaven to earth today. And so we're going to continue to look at this. We are in John. The, we're at the very end of our series. We only have a few weeks left of the entire book of John. It's been over a year we've been in this book. And so here we are. It's John 21, the final chapter. And Jesus told his disciples to leave Jerusalem and return to Galilee. And we find them there today at the Sea of Galilee. Now, it says sea, but it's smaller than a lot of the lakes that you've heard of and know of. But the Sea of Galilee is where many believe that Jesus walked on water, where he calmed the storm, where he called Peter and Andrew to be fishers of men. It's where the John Baptist likely baptized Jesus, where Jesus fed the masses with a few loaves and some fish and, and the Sermon on the Mount. This shoreline, this place, this Sea of Galilee has, has been just the landing pad of so many different moments that Jesus has had. And he tells his disciples to leave Jerusalem and travel back to their old stomping grounds where things are familiar, and they're waiting for Jesus to come to them. They're waiting for Jesus to show up. He said, I'll, I'll, I'll be there. So they're just waiting, and you have to imagine that they're living in a lot of anticipation and probably some trepidation, not knowing what to expect, not knowing what Jesus is going to reveal, when he's going to reveal himself, and then what he's going to ask of them. Like, what do we do now? The final chapter of John's gospel actually focuses primarily on one person. It's a, it's a beautiful chapter. It focuses on John's close friend, Peter. John and Peter go on in their life to do lots of ministry together. I think they have a special friendship. If you look at their personalities, they balance each other so well. Peter's always putting his, his foot in his mouth, and John's helping him remove it. It's, it reminds me, our marriage, never mind. You know, there's just so much... They seem to be such good friends. And knowing John and him knowing Peter, they had lots of discussions together. And John adds this almost as an addendum to the end of the book. It's a touching and meaningful chapter about his friend. Because we have to remember that Peter has seen the resurrected Jesus twice already, right? Jesus has appeared in the room twice. He's seen him. He's seen Jesus smile. He's seen Jesus show him the, the wounds. And, and Jesus has been there. But, but he, I would guess, because I like to put myself in this moment, Peter is still haunted by that night at the high priest's house where he had showed up next to a fire, warming his hands while Jesus was being beaten across the courtyard. The night when Peter denied that he even knew Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And on the final denial, the word says that, that Jesus turned from his interrogation and looked right into Peter's eyes, and their eyes met. And Peter ran from that gaze. He ran from that moment. He wept bitterly, it says. He wept in heartbreak and shame. He wept in his failure, in the betrayal. And while he's seen Jesus alive since then, there's just a huge elephant in the room. There's a huge elephant in Peter's heart. And I can imagine his thoughts. Yes, Jesus smiles at me and Jesus seems fine with me. But I'm not fine with me. 
I'm not okay. I have broken relationship. I have betrayed the resurrected son of God. Where do I fit in his life? What place do I have in ministry moving forward, having betrayed my rabbi? I can't imagine the shame and worthless feelings that, that hovered in the peripheral vision of, of Peter's heart. And you know this perhaps. Maybe you've lived with some shame for a while. And even though things seem great, just in your periphery, there's just the shame that, that follows you. And Peter's been in this for weeks. We find Peter in John 21 at the same place we found him at the beginning of the Gospels. At the Sea of Galilee, fishing. Mark, or Matthew 4 actually tells us that he was fishing there with his brother Andrew when Jesus showed up at the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus said this, come follow me. Come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Now we fast forward to John, 20, John 21 and we find Peter back with the nets. Back in the boat. Verse 3. Peter said, I'm going fishing. He's there with about seven other disciples, and they said, we'll come too. So they went out into the boat, but they caught nothing all night. They would fish all night long. That's how they would do it there. And so he's back in his boat. Did you know that if Jesus had never called Peter to be a disciple, that Peter's entire life would have started and been lived and died there surrounding the Sea of Galilee? It was his father's industry. He was already in it when Jesus found him. This sea, this boat, these fish would have been his life, his destiny, had he not been called by Jesus. Fishing for the entirety of their life. And I, I think that's what he was destined for apart from Jesus. And I believe it's telling that we find him back there in the same boat. It might reveal a little bit what he was feeling. I was a fisherman. That was a disciple. But I failed at that. But I know I can be a fisherman. Peter, who has been and seen great things, he was called at one point the rock that Jesus would build his church on. But in his life, the rock has crumbled. The dream is dead. That man and that destiny is gone. And I have been in those shoes. Perhaps you have as well. Peter finds himself back in his old life in the boat. He finds himself fishing overnight, trying to keep his, to keep his mind and body occupied. And despite all the, that time, all that evening fishing, they catch nothing. In the morning, they see somebody on shore. The Bible tells us it's about 100 yards away, so that's a pretty good yell. It's Jesus. who They couldn't tell who he is. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he is. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? Which is the worst question you want someone to ask you when you don't have any fish. You know, if you've been fishing here on our, our, our rivers and someone floats by or walks by and go, hey, caught anything? Maybe. <laughs> it's like, when you have an empty, when, everything, when you've caught no fish, that's the question you don't want to be asked. And so they reply, no. They say no. And to, to Peter and, and the guys in the boat, the, the stranger on the shore is just some person yelling across the water, catch anything? No. I mean, they're tired. They've been up all night. They've been fishing all night, and they have nothing to show for it. You can imagine the mood of the guys in the boat. The man on the shore, he's not done, though. Just throw out your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll catch some. 
I, I would just love to have seen how this was received in the boat with the fishermen who've been fishing and grew up fishing. I didn't think of that. Never occurred to me to move it 10 yards over here and try this side. Like, you know, what, what, really? We're fishermen. Our dads are fishermen. Oh, we've been fishing all night. You think we never tried the right side of the boat? I mean, I've been fishing before, and someone goes, try the, try the smaller prince nymph. Now, that's some good advice, you know. But, but, but cast a little over here? That's, what do they think about this? Well, I'll tell you, we don't know what they think, but they, they did do it. They're, they're tired. They're probably done. They're probably coming in and done fishing at dawn. It's over. But they pull the net back out, throw it on the right side. They says this, they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. They couldn't haul it back into the boat. It was so heavy, they couldn't get it back. Now, I guess most of the, I would guess if I'm there in the boat, uh, most of the disciples, we are staring at this haul of fish, astonished and celebrating. You see, most of the people in the boat are staring at the miracle. But there's one person in that boat who looks up and looks to the miracle worker. I, I, who could that be? It says this, then the disciple Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. I imagine Peter's there in the boat, the son of a fisherman, a fisherman himself. He's seen a good haul. He's never seen something like this. This, this, is, this is record-breaking. He's in awe. He is dumbfounded. John hits his shoulder. It's the Lord. He looks up. He's full already of astonishment. And then to see, he recognizes it is Jesus. He knows it. And so it says this, when Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his tunic for he had taken it off for work and he jumped into the water and headed to shore. And this is the Peter we know and we love. I wonder if Jesus, 100 yards away, just chuckled to himself. That's my boy. That's my Peter. Always getting out of perfectly good boats to get to me. Peter swimming toward him. The other guys, it says, they stayed in the boat and pulled the loaded net to shore. They couldn't, it was so heavy, they couldn't get into the boat. They were only about 100 yards out, so they get the boat with this anchor of fish back to the shore. And it says, when they get there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread with Jesus. Jesus says this, bring some of the fish that you've caught. So Peter went on board and dragged the net to shore. There were 153 large fish, yet the net hadn't broke. And that means something to them. The net doesn't, shouldn't hold that many lunkers. It should have broken. The Bible's clear. It says here they were large fish. Not small, not normal, large fish. Like I said, lunkers. And we know the exact number, 153 large fish. This is the most guy thing ever. They counted. You know, you know someone, they go offshore fishing, and then they come back and they line it all up. On the, they line all the fish up, and then you get, you get your picture there, and you get the fish. Or, or I mean, you, you, you go fishing on one of the local rivers, and you get a nice big one. Instagram needs to see this one. You know, i got to post this one. These disciples, they have Jesus here with them. But hold on, we might have a record this is more fish than we've seen. We better count the fish. Count the fish. They counted every fish. And let's be honest. 
You only count the fish if, it's a, if you think it could be a record. If they had caught normal-sized fish and it was a normal-sized haul, Peter, the fisherman would have gone, eh, that's about 70. I had one of those last spring. That's a nice one. But, but, but no, no. They have to count every single fish. I mean, when you catch a lunker, even in your own life, it's, it's, it's exceptional. You look at it. You put it next to your rod. If you have a scale, you measure, ooh, seven and three quarters. Like, like you want to be precise when it could be a record, and that's what happened here. I always love that they counted the fish because we have Jesus, the greatest walking miracle on the earth, and we have these guys counting fish. 153, by the way, just in case you forgot. And not small. They were large, Okay. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread. He served them the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to them since he had been raised from the, raised from the dead. And what a moment this must have been. The greatest fish and chips of all time. There on the Sea of Galilee, eating freshly caught fish, fresh bread with a risen Savior, and what happens next is so beautiful. Because remember the conflicting emotions that Peter had going on? Remember the conflict, the, 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 the shame in the periphery, the dark cloud of shame, the fact that he had betrayed Jesus and they hadn't discussed it yet? This is a beautiful moment that's about to follow, but it's a difficult moment for Peter. After breakfast, Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know that I love you. Then feed my sheep, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question a second time. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Peter. A third time, Jesus asked him, Peter, do you love me? And Peter was hurt that the Lord had asked him the question the, the third time. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Then Jesus said, then feed my sheep. This is known as the reinstatement of Peter. But if you're Peter, you can tell there is hurt here. There is pain here. And let's look closer. Jesus asks him the first time, Peter, do you love me more than these? The word Jesus uses here in this sentence for love is agape. Agape is the big, unconditional, the God-sized love, the love that doesn't fail when times get hard. Do you agape me, Peter? Peter, do you love me unconditionally? And Peter, in his shame, either can't or won't answer, yes, I agape you. He's still broken. He had failed. So obviously he wonders, how can I say I agape you? So when he, when he replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, the word he uses for love is not the one that Jesus used. Jesus said, do you agape me? And Peter says, I phileo you. Phileo is not the unconditional love. Phileo is brotherly love, mutual respect, love, admiration, approval, being fond of somebody. That's how phileo is defined. Jesus asked, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter replied, I phileo you. Strangely, Jesus responds with a cryptic task. Then feed my sheep. And the word here actually is more like tend or shepherd. There's a love involved there. If you love me, then shepherd my sheep. What does that even mean? Jesus asks Peter a second time, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter replies the same, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Then shepherd my sheep, Peter. So agape, 
phileo, and sheep once again. Jesus asked the same question the third time. Peter, do you love me? But this time, Jesus changes the word. He changes the way he asks. He says, Peter, do you phileo me? He changes it. Now, why did Jesus change from agape love, unconditional, to phileo? Did he lower his standards? Well, obviously, Peter can't do that, so I'll lower my standards. No, he doesn't do that. What Jesus does do, though, thankfully, is he meets us where we are. You see, Peter's heart is stuck. Peter's heart is still stuck in that courtyard back where the high priest was beating his rabbi and he betrayed his savior. So Jesus goes to Peter's shoreline where Peter's fishing and goes to where Peter's heart is stuck in shame. My daughter, Selah, she's six. And something happened one time where she was upset. She'd done something wrong and she had run upstairs to her room Closed the door, crying. I gave her a few minutes, and then I remember I walked up, and I opened the door. I didn't see her in her bed, but I could hear her crying. I went over to her bed, and I could tell she was crying under her bed. And so I got down on my knees. Then I got down onto my stomach, and I began to pull myself under the bed, I got to my daughter, and I pulled her clothes with her face right in mine. I said, brightness, I love you. And in those moments, I, got, I came down to her and restored her heart. I didn't stand back and go, oh, ye daughter, present thy sinful self now in supplication. We laugh, but that's what we think God does to us. You better come crawling back with sorrow. Present yourself to me in all your sinful glory. And just like I got on the floor and went to my daughter's heart, Jesus comes down to the shore, to the sea, gets right there with Peter. And when Peter can't bring himself to say, yes, I love you unconditionally, Jesus goes right to where his heart is stuck and says, do you love me like a brother? You see, Jesus will come down to where you are stuck and he will lift you up. Jesus doesn't wait for you to restore yourself. He is the restorer. That's what he does. He reaches down into our shame, into our sin, and raises us up. Psalm 18, God reached down from on high. He took hold of me. He rescued me from deep waters. Psalm 103, verse 3 and 4. God forgives me all my sins and heals my diseases. He redeems, he restores, he, he raises me from the pit, the pit, and he crowns me with love and tender mercies. Don't crawl out of the pit on yourself, clean yourself off, and then present yourself, and then get the crown. He's rescuing, ransoming raising, thank God. This is what God does. Jesus himself left glory in heaven and came down, humbled himself as a man, went to the cross to ransom, rescue, and raise you up. He always comes down. He always reaches down. He always raises up. And Jesus did this for Peter in Orchard. He wants to do it for you. 
He doesn't wait for you to get out of your messy relationship. He doesn't wait for your slimy addiction to go away or your secret sin or your tangled web of lies. He calls you in the midst of that. He reaches in the midst of that stuff. He wants to bring you out of it. He's not waiting for you to clean yourself up before you're worthy. He didn't go say, go take a shower so I can bathe you. No, no, no. He reaches in the pit that we're in and reaches and pulls us up and raises us out. He re- he's the restorer. He's the redeemer. Salvation itself isn't waiting for somebody else to clean up and clear up and straighten up and save themselves. Salvation is Jesus reaching down in there and raising us up despite all of that. Jesus coming to earth to die, by its very nature is him reaching down. And here in this beautiful moment, he comes down face-to-face level with Peter's heart because Peter's stuck. He says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times. Once for every betrayal. There's one more thing that I that I that changed this whole, that changed everything for me in this account. Jesus said, Do you love me more than these? First thing he asked Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? Who is the these he's referring to? See, it's Peter and Jesus, John, about five others there around the fire. Like, how awkward would it be if he goes, Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples? John with a piece of fish halfway to his mouth, like, what? Why is he bringing me in on this? Peter, do you love me more than these other fellows sitting around here? You see, I always assumed he was referring to them when he said, do you love me more than these? I go back to the original language and there's no, doesn't tell us what these are. Luke tells us actually in the Last Supper, the disciples are up in the upper room arguing over who's the best, over who loves the best. They're in competition. Oh, I think I'm the best disciple. I bet I love him more. And Jesus shuts it down. Time and time again, we see the disciples following Jesus the last three years, trying to see who's the jockeying for position to see who loves the best, follows the best, who is the best. And Jesus wants no part of it at every turn. So why would Jesus, coming to the end of his time with his disciples, in the last waning moments he has with them, turn to Peter and stoke a fire of competition to see who loves him the best? Why? Well, I don't believe Jesus is referring to the disciples when he says, do you love me more than these? Remember where they are. They're next to the Sea of Galilee. There's a boat over there. There's 153 large fish, a record-setting haul in that industry. Do you love me more than these, Peter? I think Jesus is referring to the very thing they just got done counting and celebrating, the huge haul of fish. Why? Why would he ask if you love him more than fish? It's the symbol of success of what Peter's life would look like apart from Jesus' calling. It was what, it was, it's the greatest work day ever Peter could ever have if he had never met Jesus or if he doesn't get restored and redeemed and he goes forward into fishing. 
Do you love me more than these? This is the life Peter would pursue if he's not restored on this shore. That boat, those nets, those fish, that is the future that he will find himself in for the next however many years if he's not redeemed in this moment. And Jesus says, that's the greatest symbol of success you could ever have in life apart from me. Do you love me more than these? I believe he's referring to that. And then he says, feed my sheep, shepherd my sheep, which makes perfect sense to me now. It makes sense why Jesus would ask him that question and then give him a command and a calling at the end of each exchange. Do you love me more than your old life and purpose and the success you could have there? You, you know I do. And if you do love me, I give you a new purpose. Leave your old life behind and go and feed my sheep. The restoration of Peter had to take him from his, sh his, his shame, his sin, and all that, restore him and send him into a new calling. Leave your old life behind. Leave behind the life you could have apart from me. The greatest haul, the greatest day you could ever have on the markets or whatever your industry would be. Do you love me more than these? Do you? What would your haul be? What would your record catch a fish be? Do you love me more than these? Oh, Lord, you know I do. Then go and love people. See, Jesus says, I have a new calling for you. Peter, you may think you've sinned too much or too big. And the best you can do is, is go back to some old life and eke out whatever happiness you can have. And I've been there. I have been in that place where I made a decision. Well, I am done with ministry. And I'm going to go eke out as much of what I can, happiness in life. There might be times in your life where you felt God is done with you. I'm just going to go back to my comfort zone. I'm going to go eke out the best life I can. See, Peter thought himself disqualified. And Jesus says, not so. There are sheep that need you. And Jesus wants you to know here this morning, despite your sin, despite your betrayal, despite your wandering, despite you and your comfort zone, despite you and your secret pet sins, despite these things, Jesus says, I'm not done with you. Your sin doesn't define your destiny. I have a calling on your life. You can drop the old stinky nets of your comfort zone because we got bigger things to do. We got bigger fish to fry. I forgive you, I restore you, and I call you. There's a greater cause, a greater mission, a greater destiny than your comfort zone. Jesus is asking Peter to change his occupation. He's probably not asking you to change your occupation. He may be, but he's asking you to change your preoccupation. That whatever you're in, to be preoccupied with loving God and loving people, which is what do you love me, feed my sheep means. If you love God, you will love people. Just like Jesus did for Peter, he comes down to wherever you are. He meets you in your doubts. He meets you in your sins. He comes to the shores of your life, and he says once again, do you love me? You know I do, Jesus, but I'm, I've messed it up really bad. He, he didn't ask that. He knows that. He knows what. Do you love me? Yeah. I have a calling on your life. I have a mission for you. Do you love me more than your success? 
Do you love me more than your career? Do you love me more than your way of living? Do you love me more than your safe plans and your comfort zone and your pet sins and your habits? Because I'm calling you to something greater. Step out of your comfort zone. Love me and love people. Shepherd my sheep. Open your mouth and speak of me. Invite others to me. I call you to a greater life than just eking out what you could apart from me. But here with Peter, Jesus isn't done. There's one more thing that Peter's heart needs, and I think we miss it. But Jesus said two words to Peter that change everything. After the three questions, after the commissioning to go and shepherd his sheep, after this difficult exchange with Peter, Jesus says something that Peter's heart had to hear. John 21, verse 19. And Jesus told him, follow me. Jesus had said those same two words on this very shore. And what had Peter done? Dropped his nets and followed. Those two words were all Peter wanted to hear. Follow me is a phrase a rabbi uses to invite somebody into a discipleship relationship. Follow me. And for Peter, that's all he's ever wanted to do is follow Jesus. He, he followed him to the wilderness. He followed him through. He followed him onto choppy water. He followed him into, into the, the temple, into the city, in the, the courtyard of betrayal. And then they failed. And he thought the dream was dead. And he thought his sin and betrayal disqualified him from following Jesus the way he was asked. But Jesus uses these two words. In, in spite of your sin, in spite of your betrayal, follow me. Follow me. Follow me. That was all Peter needed to hear. Orchard, he says the same to you. No matter what you have done, no matter where you have been, no matter how dirty you think you are, how far you think you've gone, how lost you think it's gotten, how ugly areas of your life are, he still looks at you in the eyes and says, Follow me. The truth is, because of the work that Jesus has done, you are loved, you are chosen, you are forgiven, you are called, and you are commissioned, and he has a destiny for you that's greater than your sin. Thank you. That deserved an amen. He still looks at you. An orchard for many of us, we are on the shore of a very comfortable life, a very comfortable faith, not risking anything, doing what we know how to do, know what to expect, and Jesus walks up and says, do you love me more than this comfortable life? Because we got some stuff to do. Follow me. Orchard, may Peter inspire each of us today that no matter how far you've gone, no matter what you've done, that Jesus calls you and cleanses you, reinstates you, redeems you. He rescues you and he calls you to an extraordinary life. He says, do you love me? Yes, love God. Then shepherd my people, love people. Love God and love people. So I'm gonna ask you some questions that he asked Peter there. And this is a crowd participation moment. Do you love Jesus? Then love people. Do you love Jesus? Then love people. Do you love Jesus? 
than love people. And now, drop your nets. Leave your comfort zone behind and follow him.